Welcome back to the Folk Pie Podcast, supplementary episodes for the Burlington Part 2 video, where we dive into all the fun details that didn't make the cut. If you haven't seen the video, go watch it on our YouTube channel, at Folk Pie. Now we're talking about Ira Allen. This guy. This guy. Ira Allen has a statue of himself at the University of Vermont. Go check it out sometime. We're talking about the youngest Allen brother, but by far the craziest of them all. Businessman, liberal agitator, and political wonk, international plot schemer to overthrow governments, and conspirator par excellence. Ira Allen was a pure opportunist. On a personal note, he, like his brothers, fell in love with the natural splendor of the Green Mountains in the Winooski River Valley. Not hard to do. Long before the American War, Ira and his cousin, Remember Baker, a Puritan name if there ever was one, scoped out the Winooski River and built a teeny little fort on the Winooski Falls. Remember taught Ira the finest points of wilderness survival. Ira had studied under a Connecticut surveyor for one week, picked up the basics, and was now out in the zone in the northern woods, scoping out the land and reporting back to investors, and furthering his family's interests, mapping out all the land grants they had and using that knowledge to swap useless swamp land for primo valley land. Most New England investors, of course, never saw the land they purchased deeds to, so Ira was able to pull wool over quite a few eyes. He was 19 years old. Within a few years of shrewd speculative deals, he held a portfolio of Green Mountain lands for himself. The family of Allen brothers met in council to conspire how to best further their interests. Ethan was a swashbuckling militia leader who protected their claims. Hammond and Zimri, who we won't talk about much because they're a little boring, were savvy and safe business guys. Levi was a merchant middleman with contacts among the British, and young Ira had the dream of concentrating his family's influence and property around the Champlain River Valley. Quite the potent little mafia developing, huh? In one of these candlelit collusions, Ira convinced his brothers to join in partnership to form the Onion River Lands Company, a corporation to manage their grants. But the thing was, it was a family enterprise with no outside investment or formal structure. This will be a problem later as the brothers begin to turn on each other to maximize their slice of the pie. I wonder who could have seen that coming? Ira began his lifelong obsession with transforming the area around the Winooski River into a commercial enterprise. He called it the country my soul delighted in, and fair enough, it is eye candy. They put out advertisements in the Connecticut Current, mm, this rag again, proclaiming availability of good farms and large tracts of land. They offered easy rates as long as you settled permanently. Though I'll point out that not everyone did settle permanently on the frontier. Many residents would be pioneers their whole lives, staying for only a few years, then buying new cheap land somewhere else where living might be easier and better, like Ohio or Kentucky or eventually Missouri or Oregon. Spoiler alert, you can only go so far west. Anyway, Ira Allen and Remember Baker, Remember Baker? started cutting rough roads and building a fort block at the Winooski Falls that they called Fort Frederick. If I had to make an educated guess why they called this Winooski Fort Fort Frederick uh, was because Frederick the Great was king of Prussia at the time, a so-called enlightened monarch who ruled according to cutting-edge enlightenment thought. And the Allens were such dorks for European rationality that they just had to name their log cabin after this Prussian king. Now, as the Green Mountains were starting to get institutionalized under a new political formation, the Vermont Republic, Ira entered politics to expand and extend his personal power. Being a big landholder, he was indispensable to Thomas Chittenden. Ira became a political operator, one of the oligarchs in the boys' club, the so-called kitchen cabinet, 
of influential men who met in Thomas Chittenden's private home to run the New Republic. It was Ira Allen's idea to confiscate pro-British Vermonters' property, and Ethan Allen would serve as a judge in the matter, all land and benefits flowing back to the Allens. Complementing this, he became the Vermont Republic's treasurer, controlling Vermont finances and sales of ungranted lands. Of course, we know he was instrumental in negotiating with Haldeman for better terms under Britain than what the Americans could offer. We talk about this at length in the Ethan Allen episode. Later, of course, Ira would insist that it was merely to string the British along and save the defenseless northern frontier against Canadian invasion. But that argument is no more convincing now than it was at the time. If Congress had failed to both sway Vermont and survive the British Army, then Vermonters would not have hesitated to join the Crown. Remember, they were already in the process of letting British troops occupy Vermont when the American War surprisingly ended in an American victory. But after the war, they kept contact with Quebec Governor Haldimand and would petition for free trade along the border to turn Burlington into a sweet commercial entrepot that Ira so dreamed for, turning his empty plots into thriving, taxable townships. But Canadian trade was elusive, and in the 1790s, there still wasn't a reliable way to get Vermont's raw exports to Quebec. Ira Allen's prominence began to decline. He was unpopular. The oligarchy was dissolving against new political factions who wanted democracy. Ira held multiple government offices at once and was very clearly self-serving. So he started to focus on developing the area around the Winooski Falls. He built forges, sawmills, gristmills, general stores beside the falls at the present-day city of Winooski and publicized the valley in advertisements hoping to attract yet more settlers. Now, as a newly incorporated state in the American Confederation, the Vermont legislature started making plans for the establishment of a university that could install proper values for a new generation of Republicans, that is, people who believed in republics. Ira Allen wanted the university to be built in his valley as the jewel in the crown of Burlington. It promised glamour and prestige for this undeveloped village. Ira lobbied for it to be built at the top of the hill, a prime position for a dazzling new institution. He circulated a petition and attracted many prominent men to sign it and contribute money. Enter Reverend Samuel Williams, a forgerer who was hoping to escape professional disgrace by fleeing to the Green Mountains. He helped Ira by writing an anonymous observation under the pseudonym of Res Publica, directed at the state legislature, that Burlington was just the perfect location and Ira Allen was the man to direct it. What really cinched the deal was the 4,000 pounds of money that Ira Allen promised to contribute if only the university was put in Burlington. So the state legislature chartered the school, voted for the location of Burlington and the act creating the University of Vermont for the education of the youth and the advancement of morality, virtue, and happiness became official on November 2nd, 1791. Ira Allen and old Thomas Chittenden were placed on the board of trustees who would decide how the university was structured and how the minds of the coming youth were programmed. Raising money to build the damn school was a difficult task. Ira Allen still hadn't paid his promised money, the 4,000 pounds, about half a million dollars in today's money. When the trustees met, they agreed the top of the hill was the prime spot for the university, and it happened to be on Ira Allen's land, and he considered that mm, around a quarter of his 4,000-pound pledge was already settled. The other trustees started to suspect Allen was fleecing them, and their relations became strained as he really started dragging his feet on the whole money thing. Instead, he presented a plan to lease some of his 
least valuable lands for the university's benefit and declared, I hereby promise and agree that I will not take any advantage to evade giving the 4,000 pounds and hereby obligate and bind myself to pay the said sum to the trustees that are now appointed. Big words, but totally unenforceable in any capacity. Ira had gotten the new university placed in his little fiefdom and was not even putting up the money for the school. Ira Allen is a little con artist. The thing was, though, he didn't have the money and never would. So, although the school did end up in Burlington, Ira Allen somehow gets credit for its founding and a swank statue on the campus green. In the 1790s, Ira Allen was losing his monopoly. Other speculators and capitalists were moving in on his turf, laying claims to his own deeds. He still owned over 100,000 acres across Vermont, but the family was deep in debt, and their assets weren't making any money. The Allen Empire was falling apart. He needed a way to turn his fortunes around. If Burlington was connected to the British-Canadian market, they'd really be in the money. The idea of a canal along the Rila Shoe had been floating around for like a decade at that point, but someone would have to build it. And who better than the most powerful empire in the world, his own friends, the British? So Ira Allen mortgaged off his best land for some gold and sailed to England to try to bug the Brits into building him a swank new canal. He rented an apartment and schmoozed with some royal administrators, trying to make friends and hoping someone would just do him a favor and put in a good word for him. And the British recognized the value of the canal to Allen, and only to Allen, and just kind of teased him along without promising anything. Months passed, and with the can getting kicked down the road, no promises made, letters and petitions left on red, Ira was pissed and pretty desperate. He'd mortgaged his property empire to come here, and this canal deal squared away. He had another thought. 20 years earlier, when they were younger men, Ira and Ethan Allen had invaded Canada. What if they took that risk again? What if they overthrow the Canadian government to save their business interests? Damn, business interests conspiring to overthrow governments? I'm sure that'll never happen again in American history. Ready for a tale of conspiracy and subterfuge? It's revolutionary France, Paris. 27th day of the month Mesidor, year four. Real year, 1796. An Anglo-American by the name of Hallam has appeared and proposes to break Canada free of English domination. The French directory who rule the nation like this, but there's competition from other directions. Theobald Wolfe Tone is there trying to secure weapons for an Irish uprising against the British. William Tate is lobbying for a totally unrelated plot for the French to invade Ireland. Hallam meets with the leadership of the directory and presents himself as a Republican ideologue, blending Republican idealism military strategy and history, he answered that his only goal is to drive the British out of Canada. If the French directory would only just provide the guns, men, and money, the details would be figured out later. The directory agreed. France would provide 20,000 muskets to be distributed across America and Canada in preparation for action. A French fleet carrying 4,000 guns and 3,000 men would attack Quebec. New Brunswick and Nova Scotia would be secured. A detachment of 300 English-speaking French army officers would land at Portsmouth, New Hampshire, make their way to Vermont and Mississippi Bay, and lead American adventurer mercenaries and French-Canadian rebels when the main force arrived at Quebec. With a late summer attack, the puny British garrison would have no aid and be forced to surrender. Given that they were successful, the Liberation Army would arrange a popular convention at Montreal to draw up a new constitution distribute the property of the Jesuits and British crown among the poor, and reimburse France for its costs. 
the U.S. would naturally extend recognition to the new United Columbia, which is what they wanted to call it. Then, naturally, losing Canada would send Britain into turmoil and result in revolutionary republics in both Ireland and England, or so the directory hoped. Hallam's real name, I'm sure you would have guessed by now, was Ira Allen, and Allen was getting real feverish over the idea of a united Columbia, a country independent of Europe, and Allen dreamed with Burlington, Vermont as its new capital. Seriously, I don't know why he thought this. A 164-ton ship, an American ship, the Olive Branch, was chartered, but problems started almost immediately. First, they found the Olive Branch could only fit 15,000 out of the 20,000 guns and 21 cannon, and the British almost certainly were informed of the plot. Despite slipping out of the English Channel, Olive Branch was apprehended by the HMS Audacious, love English ship names, and dragged back to England where an 18-month legal battle began, when the British first accused him of running guns to Ireland, then accused him of fermenting unrest in Canada. God is ass. Allen appealed to his own government, and Secretary of State Timothy Pickering started investigating and wrote a letter to the English king that Ira Allen was, quote, infamous for his villainies, Uh uh-oh. With rumors of United Columbia plots piling up, the British basically decided to keep the olive branch as far away from Canada as possible and seized the cargo. The British were basically panicking because all signs were pointing towards Canadian uprisings, and in 1797, a Rhode Island merchant in Quebec was arrested because of his contacts with notable Vermonters that were known to be agitators for uprising, among them Ira and Levy Allen. Levy was arrested at this point and jailed briefly. The Rhode Island merchant was hung. When Ira Allen's case opened under his right honorable Sir James Marriott, Uh, The judge spent 15 minutes by the watch insulting him and the people of Vermont and ordered him to provide better proof of his claims over the muskets. Allen, as a fuck you, wore his Continental regiments to court on the day of his final ruling and filed an appeal. He made appeals to the English public by publishing 1,100 pages of propaganda over a seven-month span in books and pamphlets. The appeals court got back to him and said he could have his guns back by posting a substantial bail, certain that he could convince the directory back in Paris to provide satisfactory documents to the British. Ira Allen returned to France. But French governments move pretty fast these days, and the government that had given him the guns was now just a footnote in history, and the new French foreign minister was pushing a hard line against the U.S., their relationships having been damaged by the XYZ affair. And now there is a quasi-war between France and the U.S. that threatened to break into a real war, and Paris was not about to give Allen another chance. In fact, they had Ira arrested and hauled to Temple Prison for three months with no explanation, freed, and then incarcerated again for nine months in the worst prison in Paris. With no funds to buy his own food and bedding and treated harshly by his jailers, he began to fall ill. Supported by American expats like Thomas Paine, kept him from starving, and he began writing his autobiography. Finally, he was out again, and things started looking up. The directory was out of power, replaced by some guy named Bonaparte's new consulate. Allen called his revised strategy the proposed plan to revolutionize British America, but Napoleon's France was not interested. They had bigger fish to fry. So Ira Allen returned to Vermont in 1801, returning home after five long years away and found that his land and commercial empire had evaporated. Unpaid taxes and debt-seeking lawsuits stripped him of all his property, like all of it. His life's work was gone. 
By that time, Levi was his only surviving brother, and he was a bankrupt alcoholic. His friend, Thomas Chittenden, was dead, and his successor governor was an enemy. He lost control of the Olive Branch cargo, all the guns were repossessed in New York City, and fleeing debtor's prison, escaped to the new territory of Kentucky, where his old friend, Matthew Lyon, another interesting character, helped him to declare bankruptcy. Ira Allen went to Philadelphia, broke and old, and stayed there for the rest of his life. He tried to return to Vermont twice, the Green Mountains that had changed so much over his life, that he had surveyed, that he had built the skeleton of, but fled both times to escape arrest for unpaid debts. After that, he never saw the Green Mountains again, that country my soul delighted in. Poor Ira. He eventually tried suing England for compensation over the old uh, Olive Branch fiasco, but that went nowhere. Frail, estranged from family, and poor as hell, Ira Allen was adrift in this new American world which he had helped to create. In 1814, 62 years old, he died of gout and was buried in a pauper's grave. What a life. Starting out as a teenage surveyor at the frontier of colonial American expansion, ending up caught up in the turmoil of the French Revolution in a terrible Paris prison, gambling big and losing it all. I can't decide whether to love Ira or loathe him. There's plenty to dislike about him, his double dealing, his land hustling, his naked opportunism. But damn, what an interesting dude. Took a lot of L's in his time. His memory is still awkward for Vermonters. A lot of people know his name associated with the dreamlike quality of Vermont's origins. Uh, But those who know, know he was a huckster and monopolist. No hate. You really got a feel for this guy. Someone who fell in love with the river, mountains, and lake. And it wouldn't be Burlington without him, for better or for worse. Thanks for listening to this story. We'll be back next week with another one. Do me a favor and become a patron at patreon.com slash folkpie. Peace!